0: Hi there, this is the Planet LP Podcast, and I'm Ted Aswagatu. This is episode 72. Nice to have you along for the ride. Back when I was starting to build my record collection in high school and college, I used to visit Tower Records, or if you live in the Bay Area, Rasputin Music, fairly regularly. Didn't have a lot of money, so whatever I could purchase at the record store was something that I put some thought into. If I was going to plunk down cash for roughly 42 minutes of music by a band or artist that I really liked, from what I heard on the radio or MTV, I expected the album to be more than just okay. I hoped that the hours spent with this record that I purchased would be a really immersive experience where I could get lost in the music. Sure, I read reviews of albums in the music press to narrow down my choices, but once I made that choice... I expected the album to at least reach my expectations, if not exceed them. Flash forward to the present, and new music is coming out with a frequency that most of us can't keep up with. That is, as one could back before music was basically free to listen to on demand. Yes, something has been lost in the lack of gatekeeping, but those lack of gatekeepers has given us an incredible amount of recorded music that I don't think – we've seen an equivalent to in any other period of time. All of this is to say that in this episode, it's all about new music. And one thing I know, because I see the download and streaming numbers, folks, is that you, yes, you, Planet LP listeners, like these episodes. So if you haven't guessed, Keith Creighton from Popdose is back with another new music report. He'll be on in just a few. Connecting with Planet LP is pretty easy. Email me at ted at planetlp.com. On the socials, just search for Planet LP on Instagram, Groupie, Twitter, or Facebook. And if you listen to this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, please give Planet LP a review. It really helps others. Find us in the Sea of Podcasts. All righty, let's get this episode started with Keith Creighton and the Popdos New Music Report for March 2023. <music> Welcome back to the pod, Keith. Hello, hello. Oh my gosh, I can't believe another month has flown by. It does go by fast, doesn't it? There is a lot we're going to be covering in this episode, so I suppose we ought to get things started with the elephant in the room, and that elephant is U2. It's a band that's been together for over four decades. They are also a band that doesn't really stop to look back on their career, but I think after four decades, they certainly deserve to do that. And so it goes with their latest release called Songs of Surrender, 40 re-recorded slash reimagined songs from their catalog. So let's start our discussion with what do you think, Keith, about this massive release? Well,
1: it's one of those things where I'm a big U2 fan, but I'm also not a traditional U2 fan. Mm -hmm. So my favorite U2 record is Zuropa. For a lot of fans, their least favorite record, but that Mm. was the one that to me really like, oh, I get it. Like, that's what they could do sonically. And then oddly enough, like, you know, I like God Part 2 off of Rattle and Hum even more than like Sunday Bloody Sunday and some of the classics. I've always been fascinated by the band. I'm not as into like their Joshua Tree, even though I could appreciate that record. And then definitely most of the stuff they did after like in, let's say, the 90s, eh, not too into it. But then strangely, I have all of their... CDs from the Songs of series that they've been doing now for more than a decade, including the one that everyone got so upset about because iTunes had the nerve of giving it to them for free. <laughs> I can't remember that. Yeah. You know, I bought that thing on CD because I liked it enough, you know. So it's one of those things where the collector in me wants to get the four disc edition, you know, because it's limited edition, it has the booklet, you know, the liner notes, the whole nine yards you know, and it won't be around forever. So like the collector of me wants it, but I'm reading the reviews on Amazon and people are like one star. I want to like poke out my eardrums, you know, (laughs) hearing you two kind of like kind of go back to sacred ground. And I know a lot of people have trouble with it, but I'm intrigued. I haven't listened to it that much, but I did last night, watch the Disney plus David Letterman documentary with edge and Bono. And that was completely fascinating and i would love to see the like the live recording that they did plus the song they made just for david letterman which yeah. is not on yeah. this box set that should be the next release from you too but going back and hearing revised versions of the old stuff not too crazy about that thought
0: yeah i spent time with the record i listened to it all 40 tracks and i've kind of been on a u2 kick since i read surrender by by bono I reviewed it in a previous episode, so I don't need to rehash what I thought of that. Just go listen to that episode if you want to know what I think. I felt like the album was pretty uneven, and I wasn't sure why they even bothered doing this. At some level, I understand. I mean, you know, just personnel-wise, they explained it. Their drummer, Larry Mullen Jr., has had to undergo surgery, so he couldn't really play drums. And then Adam Clayton, the bass player, went off and did an art film, and these songs were roughly recorded during the lockdown phase of the pandemic and then finally finished. And the edge even said, we didn't need to release this. We wanted to do this because we wanted to keep active and wanted to revisit these songs to see how they held up or could we come at it in a different way, you know, different angle, uh, break them down in some way. I mean I know you you haven't spent a lot of time with this record Keith, but Doesn't this kind of remind you of like MTV Unplugged? Because that's kind of what they're doing.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of artists of this age right now that are doing the classical treatment, you know, where they're Mm -hmm. bringing an orchestra in. Right. You know, A Flock of Seagulls, one of my favorite bands, has two of these records out. One way you can kind of see it as a cash-in. You know, in another way, it's like a nice way to revisit, I think, you know, as we get older, especially rock stars, just like rock listeners, there's only so much of that high decibel stuff you can take. And so I kind of see in our elder years, our golden years, as they say, wanting to, oh, let's replace the keyboards and the guitars with, you know, symphony, you know, it's like, you know, our easy listening years. And there is some drama that could kind of come with it. Did they need to do 40 or could they, I know there is a single disc version of this out here, I think with 17 tracks, Mm -hmm. they're almost more and less. But I think it tracks nicely, as you said, like, well, actually I'll ask you, how does it track to the 40 songs he talks about in the
0: book? Lines up pretty, pretty much the same as, as far as the track listing is concerned. The problem for me on this record is something that was gnawing at me. And then I realized, oh, the problem is Bono, it's his voice. Bono is not an intimate singer. He's not a singer who when you listen to his voice, you want to hear somebody who's really going to kind of get into your ear and sing to you in a way that is pleasing and soothing in such a way. Bono's a big noise. Bono is a guy mm-hmm. who is a stadium rocker. Mm-hmm. He gets out there and he, you know, you wait for his his big passionate moment on every song that Will come. He doesn't fail to deliver. Even a song like With or Without You that starts very sort of mellow for him, you know yes. he's going to kick it into high gear at some point. My expectations are set like that. So when I hear him try to be this intimate singer, I'm all like, yeah, it's, just, it's not working. It's like what his father used to tell him. You're a baritone who thinks he's a tenor, which means that you're kind of trying to punch above your weight. So when you try to be more than arena rocker and be an intimate singer – you're still punching them above your weight, Bono, but maybe dad's right on this one that you you, know, you, you kind of yeah. you're getting into some territory that's that's not gonna work hundred percent. Now I did listen to all 40 tracks, and there are some of the re-records I thought were pretty good. I liked Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, which I felt like on Octun Baby was a little bit overproduced at times. This one's a little stripped down, and I like I can hear the lyrics a lot better, and it is emotion is good. Red Hill Mining Town, excellent. I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, a song that I never really liked. When it, Even when it was popular off the Joshua Tree, I was like, oh God, it's so goddamn preachy. But this version to me works. I really like that. It, it had the intended intimacy that, that I think Bono was struggling with on, on some of the other tracks. The one that really disappointed me was the final track, which was 40, and that's the final track on War. Which is a song that they used to close their shows with. And it's a really wonderful song. I think it's taken from Psalms forty. So it's it shows their their Christian point of view. But this version, I was like, Wow, talk about the air being let out of the balloon. This, <laughs> this is almost devoid of the the kind of passion that was on war. But yeah, that one that one fell flat for me. It's interesting that you bring up the Sonics, you know,
1: how he's a stadium guy, because in the Letterman documentary, which I highly, highly, highly recommend everyone check out if you have Disney Plus, it is a delightful hour and a half, you know, Mm -hmm. really focusing on the friendship, not only of Edge and Bono. You know, going back to Dublin and what they call the trouble times with the fights with Belfast and Northern Ireland and how that affects you growing up, where you could see that kind of riding the course throughout not only U2's career, but U2's effect on Irish society. You know, I had no idea that Ireland's only 100 years old and yeah. U2 at 50 has been around for half of those, you know. <laughs> So it's interesting because they have Glenn Hansard of the Frames and the Swell season. Everyone knows him from the movie Once. He's a guest throughout the documentary and on stage at the special performance that they do. And I do notice there's a similarity between Glenn Hansard's career with the Frames and U2. Glenn Hansard, if you've ever seen this gentleman front the Frames, it is one of the most bombastic over the top religious experiences of a big sonic, you know, concert experience you could ever have. Like they just command a room and it is life changing seeing this full band with the fiddlers and the guitars and the percussionists just go to church and bring like this Irish rock music to whatever size venue they're playing. But then yet their studio albums are so quiet and dark and depressing. Mm -hmm. That you're like, where does these two connect? And I'm wondering because this was the U2 was recorded in lockdown, if it's just the silence of the studio and not having Larry and Adam there to be a full rock band, if the just the two of them and whatever engineer they had Mm -hmm. is just and plus the you know the weight of what was happening during COVID, if that kind of affects the melancholy that we see on these 40 songs. You know, we're just like, you know what? I think Bono's is more in his element in front of a sea of 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at some of the concert footage in the documentary, it's just like, holy crap. Yeah. I keep forgetting what you two can do in front of a hundred thousand people. And if anyone thought that rattle and hum was a little bit too over the top and preachy and yay, 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 we're rock stars. The new documentary with Letterman is the anti that it is very tongue in cheek, very intimate, very off the cuff and completely refreshingly fun. For a band that's not really associated with fun.
0: Yeah. And so yeah. they're their offstage personas come out very, very strongly, meaning that they're not the the characters they tend to be on stage. You know, Bono is Bono and the Edge is oh, it's the Edge. But yeah, these are just guys that grew up yeah. in Dublin and happen to be one of the biggest rock bands in the last 40 years.
1: Yeah. And I'm not going to give it away, but one of the best things that you'll get in the documentary is notice how it's Bono and the edge. And yet Larry and Adam use the regular names. Mm -hmm. They explain the secret, (laughs) why that is. And it is so funny. That's right. You'll find it in the documentary, but oh my God, you totally get it.
0: Like, oh, now that makes sense. In the book, in the book, Bono explains that about nicknames and he was talking about nicknames about his friends and so forth. So how he got his nickname, which they do talk about in the Disney plus documentary, but in the book, he goes into much more detail about some of his friends' nicknames, which are, which are pretty funny. So my, my takeaway is like, did this album need to be made? And of course the answer from my point of view is not really. I thought if they were a little bit more savvy, maybe if they had their original manager, Paul McGuinness, he probably would have advised them to keep those songs vaulted and, use them in re-release like anniversary re-releases or remasters and then tag on some of the songs that were done off of these songs of surrender sessions as just you know an extra for the fans so that would keep you know keep the money machine going and that's part of you too i mean they're they're playing the freaking sphere in in Las Vegas. And I don't know how much tickets are going to be, but they ain't going to be cheap. So, you know, with his residency, one of the things that Bono did say in his book is that U2 was about two things. One was about doing good works because they really are uh, devout Christians, except for Adam Clayton. He was, I don't think he was very much about that whole thing. He wanted just to be a rock star. And the second was to make money. And the only way that they could do good works in society was to make money first, to help people who don't have... As much and to do the good works that they believe in as Christians. They're never going to turn down a really high paying gig. And I think that Bono and The Edge know that they have to get out there and really hawk this songs of surrender as something to buy and be a big noise and be dominant in the media ecosphere because in order to move that record, they have to promote it like crazy because the tour that they're going to do well it's not a tour but the residency they're going to do in Las Vegas they're probably going to do some hits obviously but they're going to just be playing Actung Baby that's really what it's about it's their mm-hmm. you know that's the album that they're going to be spotlighting for the whole thing so that's that's my takeaway from it Keith and i just feel like it was an interesting experiment but one that just didn't need to be released at this scale
1: Yeah, we're going to talk later on when we get into some of the other albums about a lot of side hustles, where there are people that have their their day job bands, but then these are the side hustles that they're doing. And maybe that makes more sense as we wrap up our U2 talk is instead of going back and doing Nostalgia Circuit, which it seems like they're doing with the residency in this set, why not do like what Tom and Johnny are doing from Radiohead? Do the smile where you just start a side band and kind of have your own little side hustle. I would love to see Bono, The Edge, Glenn Hansard, and maybe get a drummer and some other people together and do a separate band and do more intimate shows. They don't need the money, unless Bono is just under like, oh, I've got three hundred people on the crew I need to keep employed.
0: Right. You know, it's like
1: do something that just means something to you and get out there and maybe give people a chance, just like they do in the documentary, to see these guys in a more intimate setting. Right. Perhaps the biggest delight of the entire documentary is David Letterman just enjoying. He, he knows he's never going to have an experience like this again. No, watching yeah. Bono record in a studio, watching Bono sing in a pub, and then also the small theater in the round. Letterman was every single fan enjoying <laughs> that moment. And so when the camera is on Letterman enjoying and processing this experience, to me, it was just a
0: complete pleasure. For a comedian and a talk show host who's known for his acerbic wit and kind of detachment sometimes. And you know, he really pioneered that breaking of the fourth wall and and kind of winking at the audience and deflating anybody who's trying to do a bit in front of him. He was genuinely touched. I mean, you could see it in his face. And U2 has meant a lot to him in his life. He's had the band on the show, I don't know how many times, but yeah. they they were frequent guests. So he's known these guys for a long time, relatively long time, and I think that he knows at his age now, which he said in the documentary that he's 75 years old, he doesn't know how much more he's got in terms of years. This has been a real a real experience that is something of his own spiritual journey, because he's visiting a place where a band that he really admires got their start, and he's seeing – what they can do, or at least Bono, what they, what he can do in a studio right in front of him. Yeah. And that's pretty magical. I mean, to experience it one-on-one, I mean, we're watching it as a recording, so it's still pretty impressive. But just to be in the room, that must have been very, very, as he put it, I think this is kind of life-altering for me. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And
1: to wrap up our talk on you the one thing, and I'm not going to ruin it also, but there's a final scene in the documentary mm-hmm. that's very profound and i you know knew this going in cuz i did a little recon on it before i watched the documentary wow. david letterman was back in new york and they were editing the film and realized they needed this coda for the movie and flew back to Ireland just to shoot one scene and then fly back. It was really interesting that David realized, oh, this is the way this movie needs to end. It's worth the wait. Watch the movie.
0: The documentary, definitely. Watch that documentary on Disney+. Plus. It's called The Sword of Homecoming with David Letterman um, and you 2 A well-spent 90 minutes. You're there not you going to be bored. You're not going to be bored. And speaking of homecoming, let's talk about Bono's
1: son, who is out with his second album with the band Inhaler.
0: This will uh, wrap up our visit with the Houston family. You can know, see Paul Houston is really Bono's first and last name, but yeah, let's let's wrap it up with Inhaler, and then we'll get to the other parts of our our massive new music report in the next segment. So yeah. we'll just tuck in Inhaler in there. So give us a background on Inhaler.
1: So Inhaler is um, Eliza Houston's band. That takes a lot of weight when you're the son of Bono fronting a band. There's a big running term right now called Nepo Baby that yeah. everyone's talking yeah. about. Jamie Lee Curtis just won the Oscar. And so <laughs> everyone's like, oh, Nepo Baby wins the Oscar. <laughs> At 64. Yeah, exactly. At 64. After what? 500 films? <laughs> yeah, <right>? exactly. <laughs> But it's one of those things where, you know, whether you're Kate Hudson or, you know, Lord knows how many others, there is two things. One, yes, you do get access to the industry that people on the outside don't get, but also genetically and through your upbringing, you also do get the talent, you Mm -hmm. know? So, Mm -hmm. so many Nepo babies have the talent. It's one of those things where, you know, you got to kind of like, they were given a silver spoon in life in terms of access and you know, natural born talent and definitely Elijah Houston or Houston is one of those, you know? So the first inhaler record came out in 2021 during Mm -hmm. the pandemic, big soaring anthems. Like these guys are coming out of the gates, ready to be a stadium band. And so they did really well on the festival circuit. I think the album did really well worldwide. You know, you could hear to pardon the pun, an edge of Bono in yeah. his
0: voice. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I hear, I, I very much hear Bono in his voice. A sliver, maybe an yeah. edge, <laughs> an edge in a sliver. Yeah.
1: There you go. So, but the thing is on cuts and bruises definitely sounds much more like a U2 record than the first album did. It's a very well produced, very long record, but really gorgeous melodies and impeccable production and considering how young all the guys in the band are i really liked cuts and bruises i don't think there's any standout tracks where like oh this is going to be the big single or i'm going to remember this 10 years from now but just for a full sonic experience i think it's a gorgeous record
0: hmm. okay i was going to ask you because i haven't heard the first record but i do know that for me i felt like it was a bit middle of the road I expected this to really kind of rock given their ages. I thought, wow, they were gonna they're gonna want to make that big noise. They're gonna wanna really kind of depart from the shadow, or at least get out from underneath the shadow of dear old dad. That is Bono. But I found that it was it was more and, and excuse me for saying this, but it was more Matchbox 20 unless you two. Middle of the road, sort of adult contemporary sound or vibe that I got from it. Was not so much of a put off, but more like a, huh? I was expecting something different. I'm going to spend more time with this record, I promise, because I hear what you're saying. You know, the more that you you listen to it, you like the the sort of the gorgeous production and it's just really well done. I haven't given it a lot of time, but my first takeaway is that that I was just a little bit like a bit stunned by how middle of the road it was.
1: Yeah, and to get back to your intro at the beginning of this episode, you know, Mm -hmm. when you buy a record kind of have this commitment, you kind of get married, you know, where if you're streaming, if you don't, if you don't connect with it the first time, you never go back to it. And the good thing is I own this on CD. And so the thing is I've been listening to it very often. And then yeah, a lot of times records reveal more and more as you kind of go. So we'll see, I'm like three spins into this one right now. And so it is definitely a safer one, bands, especially at their level, you know, the sophomore slump, is mm-hmm, the one mm-hmm. where the first album hits, you tour the crap out of it, there's a lot of pressure from the label to get the second one done. The first album you have your entire life to prepare for. So, but that's cuts and bruises. I highly recommend checking it out. And the right now is hitting on all fronts for me.
0: Now let's talk about a really big commitment, and that is Steven Wilson presents. Intrigue, Progressive Sounds, and UK Alternative Music from 1979 to 1989. This, you and I have bought this four CD collection. Well, I'll let let you have at it first, sir, Keith. I bought this disc the same week
1: that two other box sets arrived. One Mm -hmm. is Music Music Musique 3.0, which is all about 1982 synth pop, and 1981 All Out Attack, which is all about punk rock from just the year of 1981. So each of those from Cherry Red Records focuses on a specific genre in a specific year of time. Stephen Wilson takes the entire decade and he talks about because, you know, Stephen Wilson, for people that don't know, he is a renowned producer producer. He does these full kind of like, you know, I forget what the the, the kind of mix that he does.
0: Yeah, he does two now. One is the five point one surround sound mix. Yeah, that's the and one. Now it's the Atmos mix, which is it's a, a fully three dimensional mix, if you will. So you can hear sounds above your head, below you, left, right, and in the back. Yeah, so, so you need a, like, yeah.
1: But the thing is, you need a $100,000 stereo system <laughs> <Yeah>. to really <laughs> appreciate these. But, you know, you see a lot of box sets, like the Tears for Fears ones have the Stephen Wilson 5.1 mm-hmm. mix you have to put on a Blu-ray player to actually listen to. But so he's also in Porcupine Tree. He's in No Man. He has solo records. You know, Stephen Wilson has such a prolific career. And one of the things that he's completely known for is Sonic Perfection. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it was really interesting because this, it looks like a beautifully bound hardcover book. It has more than 60 pages of editorial in there to take you through the whole, all the bands and all that. And Steven talks about in the front, the reason that in the seventies, progressive music was really huge where, you know, you went from beyond the the kind of the three minute pop songs that were popular in the fifties and the sixties and really expand out and do kind of concept records, with multiple acts and all that kind of stuff. And so he said he was always into progressive music because he didn't like the redundancy and the simplicity of punk rock. And so he mined deep in the next decade that's not known for progressive rock to see what bands were really kind of doing progressive rock and that really kind of well thought out, really good musicianship, complex production, ambitious goals like concepts and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you're going to look at the track list and not recognize a lot of the bands but then other ones you are, but you might not recognize the tracks from them. So exactly, exactly. really yeah. great. You know, so to me with all these box sets for the first two, I just mentioned, as well as this one, the real magic doesn't come from the songs, you know, like it has waking the witch by Kate Bush, which Mm -hmm. everyone has on hounds of love. I mean, I own seven different versions of hounds of love. (laughs) That's commitment. Yeah. I did not need to get another, you know, but it's fun to hear waking the witch separated from the ninth wave, which was Mm -hmm. the song suite that it was lifted from. And then put on this kind of thing with some of my other favorite bands, like propaganda, the sisters of mercy, you know, you get the specials, new order, OMD, When you put it all together, these are great DJ mixes. And I think each of these four CDs works as a completely perfect song suite. And you're not going to love every single one. There are some that are going to be a little bit too weird, but a lot of times the ones that I really resist at the beginning, and we talked about this, I think, four or five podcasts ago... When your brain hears music that it's not used to or it can't pigeonhole it in a particular style or a memory, you know, okay, I recognize this particular rhythmic pattern, so therefore I'm going to gravitate to it more easily. When you have these more difficult listening ones, sometimes the brain then eventually expands into it and it becomes your favorite record ever. So I think this is going to be one that is definitely not a – I'm just gonna process it and then file it. It's one of those things where I think this one is gonna reveal layers for years and years to come. And then the 60 pages of editorial are really fascinating, really well-written. So you get like a deep dive into each of these bands because for every Thomas Dolby on there, there's a crispy ambulance. And there's some interesting stuff there. And I love the fact that in the Sisters of Mercy piece where they put on this corrosion, they talk about working with Jim Steinman and how they intentionally went bombastic and over the top because sisters of mercy was a goth underground band. And there is a great quote from the late Jim Steinman in the book saying, why do you always go so over the top? And Jim Steinman said, well, if you don't go over the top, you'll never see what's on the other side.
0: Yeah. And
1: to me that (laughs) describes the The entire box, you know? So the intrigue box is summed up in that statement. It is very over the top. It's very deep. It's a very complex listen. But if you really want to take that journey, it's like taking a PhD course in
0: progressive rock. It is. I have a clip from Stephen Wilson talking about this box set that he curated and specifically about the inclusion of Kate Bush. Managed to get Kate Bush on the set as well. That was a real win. Wasn't expecting that. But to me, in a way, the set wouldn't have been complete without someone like Kate Bush because she was completely about taking the kind of conceptual rock progressive rock art rock spirit into a whole new place in the 80s particularly with her albums like the dreaming and hounds of love so was very very happy when she said yes and i was really pleased actually that so many people did say yes um to this and i think they they kind of responded well to the idea and the concept. it wasn't just another sort of thrown together Compilation. It's a very, I I like to think it's a very well thought out, very strong kind of, you know, idea behind this compilation. It is. He really gave this some thought and he put some super deep tracks in that I, to this day, I'm wondering like, where was this ever released? Like, how could you get this record back in the 80s? I'm thinking specifically about. This band called In Camera, it's on disc one, and he puts on this 11-minute instrumental called The Fatal Day, and it just goes on and on and on. I'm not sure if it's exactly an instrumental, but I just remember I'm listening to this, and I had it on while I was doing some housework, and a thought came to my mind. I said, if you played this back in the 80s or put this on a mixtape, you could just label it. Songs you'll never get laid to. (laughs) You just won't. There you go. When you do a compilation like this, you have roughly 60 songs that were all recorded in different studios using different mics, different rooms. They all sound different, but whoever has to master this, whoever has to get this sequenced and mastered and make sure that it sounds consistent throughout the entire listening experience, that is a real technical challenge. This was mastered by a guy named Phil Kinrad at AIR Mastering. And Waking the Witch by Kate Bush, I have to say that you have seven versions of Hounds of Love. I have probably two. And one of the things that always kind of Vexed me about the record is the mastering. I felt like there's so much going on on this record that it should have a fuller sound and a cleaner sound. There's a lot of compression in the mix on the original and even some of the remasters. But this version, if you will, this remastered version or mastered version is so clean, so well done, so balanced that when I listen to it, I'm all like, hire this guy to do another remaster. Of Hounds of Love and even the Dreaming, because he will bring out Sonics that are kind of buried within the original production. So was very pleased by that. And I'm going to give this more time. Obviously, four CDs is a lot to digest. It's going to take months, if not over a year to kind of fully get into this. Here's something that, like I said in my intro, I plunked down my money just like you did to buy the physical copy. So I'm married to this now. These four discs and I now have a relationship with each other. It's not going to be just streamed. I don't even know if this is available to be streamed, but highly recommended as well. You will definitely hear a side of the 80s that you probably have never heard before. If all you think of the eighties is like the pop stuff that got passed off as new wave culture club and Duran Duran and Spandau ballet and, and and bands like that, that ended up on the top 40, but they were put under the moniker of new wave. This is progressive rock with a very new wave twist. If you will, I I recommend getting this. If you're uh, looking for an adventure in music, get intrigue. You'll be. And the thing is, you know, everyone talks about, well, streaming is now
1: 85% of the market, right. and here is an experience you're not going to get on streaming. Mm-hmm. One, you're not going to get the 60 pages of editorial or right. the just the nicest of having this gorgeous, hardbound book with photographs and everything else. You're also not going to get the sonic experience of the CD, which you're also not going to get if you bought it on vinyl, because in vinyl, every couple of tracks, you're going to have to flip the record. Where on the CD, you get the full sonic experience, and Stephen Wilson really mixes to the benefit of the CD. Because there are plenty of crappy sounding CDs out there with oh yeah, <laughs> either they're brick walled or they're just too compressed, <laughs> or the source material if they're burning from an MP3 or something, a compressed file, it's gonna sound like shit. You know, remember we talked about the GoGo Go Bordello record, the last one. Right it's w- one of the worst sounding records in my collection, even though one of their earlier records is one of the best sounding records of my collection. You know, the same thing with music musique, you know, 3.0, because That's on Sherry Red, Stephen Wilson is on Edsel, and these two labels, plus Rhino in America, you know, are really doing, especially for the CD genre, just world-class box sets. Music Music, which focuses on synth pop now, is nine discs in three wow. discs per year 80 81 and 82 so far and they're going to keep going they have two more least planned look at the track list for the ones you know just to kind of get a reference point but the real gems are going to be the songs and the bands you've never heard of mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because we kind of think oh the 80s are over we know it we've done it you can go back to the 80s sound but there is so much music from the 80s that has yet to be really fully discovered. And Cherry Red and Edsel are mining these deeply every year discovering bands and scenes that happened in the 80s that I was completely unaware of, even though I was a really huge deep cut music fan. Mm -hmm. So the 80s to me are alive and well and are producing as much gorgeous new material as they ever did in the original years. You know, I just bought the new Flock of Seagulls self-titled debut three disc edition, which has all their B-sides single mixes, remixes, and radio sessions. Mm -hmm. And so once again, you get to fully explore a particular era of a band in a complete sonic new glory. You know, Marshall Crenshaw has one. And then to kind of dovetail before we wrap this up with Sisters of Mercy, finally, the Sisterhood CD, which has been out of print for years, is back on CD. You know, the Sisterhood had one record called Gift. And I had no idea the, the history on this. But back when the Sisters of Mercy first split and then half the band went off and formed the Mission, you know, and the Mission and the Mission UK, Mm -hmm. as they were known in America, had a very prolific career. But the the original title of that band was going to be the Sisterhood. And Andrew Eldritch was so infuriated that they were going to, you know, be the the Sisters of Mercy and the Sisterhood that he had to rush out an EP in the name of the Sisterhood just to lay claim to the name it is a gorgeous one, but you know, as we were kind of doubling back to where you were talking about with in camera and that really long song, (laughs) the sisterhood's (laughs) biggest song was called Jihad, which was, I think nine plus minutes long, maybe longer. And the only lyrics are the words two, five, zero. That's it over and over and over again. But with the most ridiculously over the top middle Eastern hook, you know, it's a goth dance masterpiece, and I can't get enough of it. What does two out. five zero mean? I have no idea. Really? <laughs> but it's just literally imagine every different way to sing. So it's like the dead, the haunting dead female mm-hmm. vocal two five zero four. zero. You know the chorus or the you know the hook kicks in. It is ridiculously I over the to top. Th- I know, but hear this. Yeah, I have to check it, it <laughs> out and get it because the thing is every decade or so they put it out on CD and then it's out of print again for another decade. So get gift by the sisterhood while you can. And I highly recommend that, you know, the two new ones, the Marshall Crenshaw remix of uh, an expanded edition of his debut album. And then the same thing with the flock of seagulls. So lots to go
0: back to in the eighties, that decade. Okay. So let's get into our current decade, as it were, and some of the new releases that are that are out and are pinging on your radar. We're not going to rush too quickly
1: into the now. Right. We're going to talk about the 90s and side hustles. Two new ones that just came out. There's The Gorillas, Cracker Island. You can't even call it a side hustle anymore for Damien Albron from Blur, because they, they've had so many albums out now. But it's one of those things where Stevie Nicks... Is on the new one, Cracker Island. They have just kind of come full circle from being this kind of like edgy avant garde pop band that was kind of like the, you know, a weird alter ego of Blur to now just being a completely stadium headlining pop band. And so Cracker Island, I think, is a very rewarding, you know, record in the mainstream pop sound. But meanwhile, Graham Coxon from Blur just did a really surprising new album called The Wave. And this is with Rose Eleanor Dugall of the Pipettes. Now, do you remember who the Pipettes were? No idea. I loved them. They were a one-hit wonder, kind of a one-hit album wonder, because they had several big singles but they were a very contrived girl group created okay. by a guy named Monster Bobby of the cassettes. This guy was like, oh, let's bring back that girl group of the Phil Spector era. You know, okay. So these uh-huh. girls were all very hip. They wore polka dot dresses, the glasses, the hairdo, all out of the 1950s. And they had like some hits like Pull Shapes and Your Kisses Are Wasted On Me. Very glorious, over-the-top girl group pop. But then the band just completely imploded and all the singers left. And by the time the next Pipettes record came out, it was a totally different band. But so Rose, one of the original singers from the original trio, met Graham Cox in a blur and they hit it off. They dated for a while and had a baby. And now with Wave, they're having their second baby, which is an album. And, you know, it's really interesting because she was in such a manufactured, contrived kind of concept record with the Pipettes. The Wave, which is spelled W-A-E-V-E, you know, one of those things where I think it goes back to folk and sea lore from UK, that that spelling, it's really interesting. It is a very experimental pop record because experimental, just as we kind of double back to that poor fatal day from in-camera you were talking about, experimental could either be really hard to listen to or it could be completely engaging. And this is a really engaging record. Of just the two of them taking vocals. Graham playing guitar. He's one of the best guitarists of our generation. Every single song just veers into new sonic territory where huh. you just never know what you're gonna get next in terms of who's singing, what's playing, what's the vibe of the song. I highly recommend checking out The Wave by Graham Coxon and Eleanor or Rose Eleanor Dugal of You know the Pipettes, but it's just called The Wave, W-A-E-V-E.
0: You, you know, when you were explaining the biography of the band. It reminded me of that B 52 song, Song of a Future Generation. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's one of my favorite wanna songs. Wanna be in the band Blur, wanna be <laughs> in the pipettes, let's meet and have a baby yeah. now. And they did, they met and had a baby. And a second one, too. That's So yeah. good. <laughs> and I always love that B-52 song, because
1: there is a, hi, I'm Keith, you know? You like, right, oh. yeah. Keith rarely shows up
0: in song lyrics, and so and I, I was lo- very excited about that. I really like that Gorillas album. I put that on last night while I was prepping for the podcast, and I- I liked almost every track. I was like, "Wow, this is this is pretty solid." I'm going to come back to this one. I might just even buy this one on CD as well. Yeah, I because- did listen to the I did listen to the wave, and I was in the car driving around. I had to turn it off. I thought this is something that actually deserves a little bit more attention than just driving around in traffic. It's not quite not quite the driving tune, I don't think, or driving CD or or uh, album. With Gorillas, you do get Jamie's
1: illustrations on all the album art. And it's one of those things where I'm like, "Oh, I should own these." And so I actually spent the last month buying all of the Gorillaz albums, including the Japanese editions for all the bonus tracks and stuff like that. And so I'm kind of looking forward to spending the rest of my 2023 really kind of getting to know Gorillaz instead of just paying attention to the singles.
0: So Right. But yeah, it was interesting to hear Stevie Nicks on on the album. It was just it was it was a bit of a surprise. It was like, "Oh, Stevie Nicks." Wow, she's showing up in a weird way, but uh, that's fine. If she wants to be on gorillas, that's cool.
1: And I thought we would wrap up this particular segment with another side hustle. And this is an interesting one because I really wasn't familiar with the day job, and that is the super suckers. You know, I, I kind of know of the band, I get their scene and all that kind of stuff, but man, I loved the concept when I heard of metal Marty's
0: greatest hits. <laughs> and yeah. so it this is like one of those TV things, right? Yeah. So yeah. it
1: looks like, and it's packaged as a K-Tel record, oh, you know, so they okay. do, it makes it look just like a vintage KTEL record. It's the guitarist in the super suckers and he just puts out the sleaziest barroom rock you've ever heard. <laughs> it is ridiculous, it's over the top, swagger and attitude and shit tons of whiskey and it is just a really fun record. Not much else to say to it. You know, once in a while like Andrew W.K's, you know, I Get Wet, there's just a, you know, which is, you know, had Party Hard was the big single from that. Sometimes you just need a party record, and this is what it is.
0: The companion disc to Freedom Rock, I would say. You just get Freedom Rock at Metal Marty's Greatest Hits. Alternate them at your next party. It might be fun. And yeah.
1: red- can you not? I've just bought Freedom Rock it was in a used cd bin (laughs) and i'm like oh my god is that freedom rock
0: (laughs) Yeah, man, turn it up man
1: (laughs) i had to own it so for four bucks i got the two disc version saved you know i think it was (laughs) 1999 in 80s money back in Uh the day when you had to buy it off the tv so right (laughs) i just want to
0: hear those two guys is that freedom rock man yeah man turn it up man just the original so let's play that just really quick man. Is that freedom rock? Yeah, man. Well, turn it up, man. Uh, um, it still about.
1: sounds to me like Tommy Chong, you know, who's <laughs> back on that 90s show haven't even aged a day since that 80s show or hasn't even really aged a day since that 70s, you know, right in the real seventies, you know? So it's like, it always reminds me of Tommy Chong. So oh yeah. Oh, freedom, okay. rock, <laughs> freedom rock, man. Freedom Okay. Yeah. This is the perfect segue because you turned me onto this. This is the next one that Ted gets me to buy a record and I really love it. The ragged Jubilee the yeah. Holland overdrive. And when I first came on, I'm like, Oh, holy
0: shit, Jim
1: Morrison is alive. Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> I said this is a record that you two wish they recorded instead of Songs of Surrender. Oh, my this God. This thing is, it is intense to the wall rock. I mean, it, but it's so well done. It was recorded in just like two days. What you're going to hear are live takes for the most part. And that's rare when, when bands go into the studio. They usually, you know, they record each instrument separately and then mix it all together. Rarely are they all in the same room together, just doing a live take. I think it's got an immediacy and an honesty to it. My assessment of it, I said the band isn't taking any direction from a producer to, all right, we really got to rock this shit up, guys. All right, right. Instead, it sounds like the producer, it's this guy named Rob Campanella, who's noted from band the Brian Jonestown massacre. He heard their demos and said, yeah, let's capture your live sound in the studio. Absolutely. No production sweetening is going to make you sound any better. So just listen to the lead track. It's called placebo by the ragged jubilee i think you're going to be hooked if you like rock music
1: yeah because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the frames and with u2's latest record you know sometimes the quiet of the studio is just so depressing and alienating that you get these really just somber records Mm -hmm. and so it's great to see them just grab the whole freaking band into a studio and just rock the shit out and not overthink it because as this thing was on i'm like Oh my God! This is such an intense and immediate euphoric record. Like this could have been released in 1968. You know, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Here's the only thing, and this is from, between me and the label. Okay. You know, they signed to this label, and they're like, yeah, yeah. They put out the press release last fall that they signed the Raga Jubilee. They didn't put this damn record out on vinyl or CD. It's only mm-hmm. streaming. Mm-hmm. I had to buy it on HDTracks.com, and I don't. Have any kind of you know affiliate relationship with them, but they have a current 25% off, you know. So I got the lost list files for 10 bucks. Okay, that's worth it, you know. So I'm gonna burn that to a CDR and just crank the crap out of it. But oh my god, come on, put this record out. Teenagers are not gonna buy this. Older guys like me that are rock fans are going to buy it. Mm -hmm. Give me a damn CD. You know, I'll still buy it again (laughs) if they put it out on CD. But you know, in the meantime, I've got the loss list. It's going to sound great on my Harman Kardon, and so. But really, really
0: recommend Maholand Overdrive. Yeah, by the Ragged Jubilee. Every one of these new music reports that we do, it's always an expanded edition, and I don't think I've heard anybody complain about it. So let's just keep going. (laughs) Okay, cool. So here's, I'm just going to quick hit for a a
1: bunch of my favorite records from last year just came out with expanded editions. You know, so I already bought the first record and now I've bought the whole record again. And for a minute I got my panties in a bunch thinking, why do I have to buy the record again when I already bought the first one just to get four extra tracks? And then it hit me in the nineties and in the eighties, I would spend as much money or more buying all the singles for the b-sides so for prince i bought all the singles the seven inch and the 12 inches and in this in the in the 90s i bought all the foo fighters cd singles and the european cd singles that you will buy for just one bonus track were like 11 dollars wow. in 90s money so for a particular album cycle let's say for a foo fighters record i was probably in for 60 or 70 bucks just to get all the songs. So I think it's actually very convenient that they just give a one time expanded edition that you could buy digital or on CD in the case of Fletcher. But like Flogging Molly, Sabrina Carpenter, Megan Trainor and Fletcher all this month came out with their deluxe editions. Fletcher, who was one of my favorite pop artists of last year, and she's touring Europe and she's touring the states LGBTQ, mm-hmm. you know, but her songs of heartache. You know, including Becky's So Hot, which is all about realizing your ex has now got an even hotter new
0: girlfriend. You know, just really song that that ended up on our our best of 2022, I believe.
1: Yeah. So she's expanded that. Hers came out on CD. I now own two CDs by Fletcher. The rest I went and bought digitally and stuff. Flogging Molly actually has a new song and then a couple of live cuts because Anthem, their last album, was one of their best of their career and i really 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 love sabrina carpenter she's kind of of that disney princess mm-hmm. you know kind of genre but her emails i can't send and now the new record is emails i can't send forward kind of puts four more tracks on top of what was already a perfect record of course love megan trainer you know she's got a new deluxe edition out so highly recommend going back and if you're streaming You got no skin in the game. Just check out those bonus songs. Okay. Okay. Now the next segment I want to talk about are two artists that are kind of at each ends of their career, but have new records out that are well worth checking out. One is Amelia by Mimi Webb. And the other one is Valley of the Dolls by Bricks Smith. We'll talk about Mimi Webb first. She was born in the year 2000, you know, which is just ridiculous, but she, uh, The way I kind of have to – if I had to give her the elevator speech, it's like imagine Adele
0: having fun. (laughs) That's a good point. I mean, Adele's a great singer, but oftentimes it doesn't seem like she's having that much fun.
1: Yeah. It's like too – oh, my God. The big emotive weeper. You know, like SNL has that perfect Adele skit, you know, where everyone around the Thanksgiving table is over-emoting to Adele. Well. Um, Mimi Webb, this is she had a really big hit debut EP. and now this is her debut album. Amelia is basically a nod to her actual name. And so she just has that gorgeous voice, like just the kind of soulful voice mm-hmm. from a white artist that Britain just does really well in minting. Gorgeous voice, very standard pop songs. Almost every song on this record is a breakup song. So if you need to have a good weep and have someone you know (laughs) hug it out because you've broken up with someone, this is the record. We're still reeling from the loss of Amy Winehouse. It's great to see artists like Amelia Webb and Celeste kind of rise up through the ranks in British music to kind of run with it. You know, you can still have that soulful voice and hopefully she has a long and prosperous career ahead of her. Which brings me to Brick Smith. Speaking of long and prosperous careers, have you heard
0: of The Fall, avant garde British band? I want to say yes, but it doesn't come to my mind because, again, like I said in my intro, we're, we live in an age where there's just so much music coming at us. And I, I think I may have heard this band, but I am not entirely certain. I can't say with 100% certainty.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where there are, you know, the avant garde post punk band, The Fall. Ran for many, 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 many years until Marky Smith's untimely passing a couple of years ago. Brick Smith was noted for kind of taking the fall in a very pop direction, so much so that they note that they refer to the fall's career as the pre-bricks, the bricks, and the post-bricks sections. And Mm -hmm. so it turns out Brick Smith is from America. And so she met, you know, Marky Smith at a show at Chicago at Metro, one of the greatest venues of all time. And so she wound up moving to the UK, joining the band and marrying him where she stayed married for a decade. So she kind of looks like Wendy James of Transvision Vamp. You know, she's got the beautiful blonde hair and she kind of sings in that really kind of edgy style that in, in a way like Le Tigre, Transvision Vamp, that mm-hmm, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she put out her first kind of real solo record, The Valley of the Dolls. It has guests turns on it from Susanna Hoffs of the Bangles. Huh. Because it turns out Bricks and Susanna toured together in the 80s. And the same thing with Ooh. Siobhan Fahey from, and I hope I said that right, from Bananarama. Yeah.
0: Shana, yeah
1: Shana, okay, so yeah. I'm okay, she got Bananarama and the Bangles on her record. I want to check it out. And I was also particularly interested in buying the CD and supporting the artist. Because remember, like I think it was on the last episode, we just talked about the Shania Twain record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you right. You, you know, really she like Yeah. Shania is well. always going to sell out stadiums. You don't have to worry about Shania making a nice living for herself. But I was shocked that her album, Queen of Me, has already dropped off the Billboard 200. Really? It's already gone. And it's only been a couple of weeks. And I think. Whoops. And then you look at, you know, Fleetwood Mac Rumors is still outselling it in terms of this is where we are you know, especially with classic rock doing really well on streaming. When you look at the Billboard 200, you'd think you're looking at the Billboard 200 from 1986. (laughs) But also then you'll have like seven albums by the weekend. You know, I was kind of shocked to see Shania fall off that so much. So I'm like, you know what?
0: That is kind of surprising considering. And I get it in a way because she crossed over into pop and adult contemporary. That was, you know, a big crossover from her country music days. But adult contemporary and pop radio in general have moved on. So where she fits in within that genre and with that audience, it's, it's like, well, she might have aged out and that's why it's not hitting. I haven't spent time with that records like you have, so I don't. And I haven't put on sort of my you know my radio side, my radio hat as it were, to, to hear to see if there were real hits on that record.
1: Yeah. So I highly recommend Living in the Doll- Valley of the Dolls, stream it. It's one of those things where this, you know, stream it first because it's either a love it or hate it. But, you know, I kind of love Transition Vamp and that really kind of raucous, you know, 80s edgy, punk, female driven pop. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of right. what it is. And okay. I notice we're getting a little bit long in the tooth here. So there's a couple of other albums I would love to chat about before we hit the road for until okay. April. All right. The next one, Adam Lambert, High Drama. Oh, my God. This thing could have gone horribly horribly wrong it's an all covers (laughs) record this is how a covers record should be don't try to emulate what came before make the songs your own Mm -hmm. and so when it starts off with holding out for a hero from bonnie tyler which once again doubles tables to our talk about jim steinman like that is a song that you shouldn't be touching you know it's a total over the chop jim steinman song Sure, and it only fits in Footloose, it seems like. <laughs> oh, totally. But then, by mid-track, it Adam completely, completely owns it. And you're like, holy shit, this sounds so good. And you realize this is what he did on American Idol. He made those songs, like the Tears for Fears Mad World, his own. And this is a chance to really kind of showcase that big belter voice of his. You know, he does Chandelier by Sia. He really kind of takes over Ordinary World by Duran Duran. does a good job on that one. But then the one that really he just completely crushes is I'm a Man by Joe Braith. I didn't really know who the heck Joe Braith was. Last fall, they were, Adam was doing the pre-press for this album and uh-huh. kind of talked about it. And so basically, Joe Braith or Joe Briath, you know, was the Adam Lambert and the Freddie Mercury just decades before. You know, oh, so in nineteen seventy-three, okay. he was kind of pulled from a folk band, but also he was in hair on Broadway, but got fired because he was in a support role overshining the leads.
0: Oh, so he didn't make the original cast recording that was released to the yeah. Original. So he's not on that. Okay. He was in a touring we the- version. Yeah. He was okay. either on a West Coast version or something. Yep. And so okay.
1: But in 1972, he was signed for a half a million dollars, which was a lot of money at that time. It is. Still is. (laughs) To Elektra. And the fact that they marketed this as a flamboyantly, openly gay, provocatively artist, full billboards with him nude, kind of looking like a sculpture. I'm shocked that this record came out in 1973. And so I bought it, you know, back in the fall. So I've had time to get to know Joe Braith's version But then, oh my God, to hear the words of I'm a man in Adam Lambert's voice, holy shit. It is one of the most powerful listening experiences you're going to have really well. And it goes right into Noel Coward's Mad About the Boy. And so once again, this allows Adam Lambert to sing from the heart, to not have to gender change the lyrics to appeal to a straight audience. Adam Lambert, once again, just put out a masterclass record. So... In between his stuff of Queen and his solo stuff of original music, I mean, Adam Lambert is just constantly full of surprises.
0: You should have been on the last episode where we talked about cover songs. You could have featured some of these uh, I know. from this from this album.
1: Okay, so two more before we go. Chris Church has a new one out called Radio Transient, and mm-hmm. this is the latest from Big Stir Records, who gave us Librarians with Hickeys, which yep. was one of our favorite yeah, records of yeah, last year.
0: Very good, yeah.
1: Church is, he's from North Carolina, and every record that he comes out with is radically different. Like, one will be more guided by voices, you know, lo fi. Or even his bio called his previous record Crazy Horse Sludge Pop, which was a, you know, I would have never had those words, but that's kind of what you feel like. This new one he describes as Buckingham Fix, not Buckingham Mix, but Buckingham and the Lindsay Buckingham and the, and the Fix. Oh, yeah. weird. Okay. <laughs> And I totally get it because I yeah. was getting early REM when I was listening to it. Uh-huh. You know, there's Shades of the Church, Hall & Oates, the English beat. He just came out with a really perfect pop record. Great indie guitar, awesome harmonies, really well-built songs. The whole album just steamrolls. It's over before you know it, but it's, just, it's really well worth it. And I kind of pulled one of the lyrics from one of the songs. It says, collect your fossil fuels and move it along intramolecular aggression is wrong okay wow it's like out of left field lyrics but yet when it's sandwiched into a song that's so good you're like holy crap this totally makes sense you know so he's kind of you know got his heart on his sleeve he got has you know some you know kind of sci-fi lyrics but also just some really good
0: love songs i think he might be the first artist to use the word intramolecular in a song yeah yeah. I don't think anyone else has done that.
1: Fabulous stuff. So the, you know, if you're looking for a way to get into it, go find going till we go, uh, you know, on your streamer. I think that's out now the full album comes out this week, but then once again, big stir puts their albums out on CD cause that's where they sound best. And so highly recommend getting the CD radio transient by Chris church. All right. And you've got uh, one more you want to spotlight. Yeah. And this one is a new band called broken sound. But it's by Fernando Perdomo, which is one of my favorite kind of producers slash musicians that are out there. Fernando Perdomo is out of Los Angeles. He produced Kate Brennan's Debutante, which is, to me, one of the greatest rock records of all time. And we don't have the time to go into it, but oh my God, check out, if you just Google "Popdose" and Kate Brennan, you'll find all my coverage of that record but he puts out probably three to five or six, maybe even 10 albums a year. This guy is as prolific as Prince and all of it is good. He puts out progressive rock to kind of Mm -hmm. dovetail our full talk. He has four collections of instrumentals on cherry red records out of the UK called out to sea. He put out yacht. Speaking of the sea, a full (laughs) collection of modern yacht rock records, which really works. He tours with Marshall Crenshaw, And he was in Jacob Dylan's band from that Laurel Canyon documentary. And he also sings. And so it's interesting because he puts on a lot of progressive instrumental records, but he has such a good voice, especially on this new album, Broken Sound. You know, just really let himself loose. And I'm just going to say, we're going to talk about singles. Check out the single Fiero. It's a swagger jam about getting a car phone you know, in the eighties. <laughs> and remember when, Yeah. you know, how much of a baller you were when you could take yeah. a phone call in the car. In the car. Yeah. And so, okay. It's kitschy. It's got this, you know, swagger jam thing going, but then when the guitar line hits, you're like, Holy crap, what an amazing song. And so this album is kind of like a combination, of, you know, between, you know, Michael Collins who does drumming and sings lead vocals. So you get two lead singers and a really, really exciting album that's all built around the Fender Bass 6, you know, which is a bass and baritone guitar. So it gives the album a unique sound. Hmm. Amazing, amazing 12-song cycle. Comes out also at the end of the month. Really highly recommend checking out Broken Sound by Fernando Perdomo. But that's the Broken Sound is the name of the record and the name of the band. Highly recommend Fiero. Oh my God, that song will change your life.
0: I've got three singles that I want to... Highlight before we close out this edition of the Pop Dose New Music Report for March 2023. The first band is from Los Angeles. They are called Bad Hombres, and they have a song called TJ Nights. It's a very throwback sound, and we've talked a lot about the 80s. Well, this is definitely mid-80s alt-rock in terms of the way the guitar, the bass, the drums all work together. It has that tone to it. These guys have a sound that really align. With my taste, it's very angular-sounding guitars, great bottom end on the bass and drums. I dig this song. I really do. Uh, I feel like it's um, one of those records that could easily get played on alternative rock radio today. Peter Gabriel's playing for time. Every 28 days at the full moon, Peter Gabriel is releasing a song from his upcoming Release called I O. It's kind of I slash O. It's a very intimate song, not heavy on the production. It reminds me of a Paul Simon or a Randy Newman song. Gabriel says he's been playing around with this song for years, as he said on this website. Playing for Time is a song that I've been working on for a long time and have performed live without lyrics. So some people may be familiar with it. It's an important song for me. It's about time, mortality, and memories. And the idea that each of us has a planet full of memories which get stashed inside the brain. I think that Peter Gabriel's album that's going to be coming out is going to be a very strong one based on the three songs that he's released thus far. And finally, my last pick is by a band who's been on the podcast before, at least the lead singer and songwriter. They are the semi-supervillains. They have a new album coming out as well, and they've been releasing singles. The first single that they've released is called, I Wouldn't Die for Your Love. They've been around for decades. They're originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lead singer-songwriter Vinnie Longhi has pushed the band sound further into this hard-rocking tone. The band has always worn their early to mid-'70s influences on their sleeves, and to me, this song does not disappoint. I love the production, the playing, and the overall performance of the band on this track. Indeed, I emailed Vinny. I said, let me know if you're fine with me playing even a portion of this song. And he said, you can play the whole thing if you want, because we own the masters. Yay! So <laughs> Keith, what did you think? Have you heard this, right? Yeah, so I'm excited. I'm
1: just excited that we can actually play a full song. I think you yeah. and I should be doing this as like a full four-hour you know, radio show where we can yeah, play all the music. Yeah. But definitely. definitely giving people something to go listen to. So I'm glad we could end on a high note literally with this song. Play it. I can't wait. Keith,
0: as always, I love having you on uh, to share your vast knowledge with our listeners, I really appreciate your contribution to this podcast. You do such a thorough job researching and curating your recommendations. I can't say thank you enough, so I'll say thank you, and cool. I hope that's and enough. we got so many good releases to talk about
1: in April, so come back in April. It's going to be amazing.
0: And I'll be back soon to talk more about music right here on the Planet LP Podcast. Until then, take care and stick around for the single from the semi-supervillains, I Wouldn't Die For Your Love.